Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I teach molecular and general biology at Olathe East High School. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I self-identify as a maker with a focus on CNC applications. Professional discussions should not be restricted to business hours. This is our personal yet professional dialogue. So grab a chair, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today, we are drinking uh, Breckenridge Brewery Vanilla Porter. I actually am already familiar with this beer. I've uh, had it a handful of times back when I first realized that I enjoy many things made by Breckenridge. Uh, I've had it a time or two myself. So this time around, we are talking about technology. That can mean a lot of different things, but today we're going to focus in particular on consumption of media and information. I think a lot of our conversation is going to focus on reading screens versus not screens. What's the literature we're going to use? A good orientation for individuals that are asking how do I approach this discussion is an article titled The Reading Brain in the Digital Age, The Science of Paper versus Screens. This was published uh, in Scientific American uh, in April of 2013, and it is an excellent uh, casual synthesis of a lot of the um, academic research that has been done comparing how people read and gather information from screen displays versus print displays. 2013 is the date on this on this literature and it gives several citations to primary articles but this topic compared to some of the other things that we'll discuss is particularly sensitive to the currency of the literature. Is that even a word? I don't know if that's a word. I'm going to use it here. It's particularly sensitive to how recently, recent, yeah. to how recently the, the literature was published and technology changes really, really quickly. So what is, what is our operational definition of technology in the classroom? Because if we were gonna say tablets, then it's only a couple years old. If we're gonna say computers, it's only, what, a decade, 15 years old? But technology has been around since the Stone Age, so what are we really talking about here? I am glad you asked. Uh, there is, uh, the philosophy of technology has been a discipline of philosophy practiced since the ancient Greek philosophers themselves. So that question, what is technology, is really important. I believe the consensus in the philosophy of technology field is that technology are tools and techniques that solve problems or improve processes. Solve problems and, and or improve processes. If we're going to consider penetration of technology into the classroom space, in particular, I'm imagining things like one-to-one -one programs, checking out computers or tablets to classrooms. In general, I am imagining every student has access to a device all the time, whether or not they're using it all the time. Do they have one all the time or not? Is that a fair working space? Uh, yeah, that, that space has lots of questions that we can discuss. Uh, one, if we are giving students uh, tablets, computers, laptops, whatever it is at a one-to-one -one ratio, the primary question then will be what solutions do they present? What problems are, does giving them that computer solve and what, or, and what things are going to be made easier by doing that? I think there's a clear pro to increasing the penetration of technology, and that is a greater access to the collective knowledge, understanding, and opinion of humanity. Their books do not have internet. 
However, there are a lot of there are a lot of arguments against them. But the the thing that I am afraid of in this conversation is that there are established and articulate arguments for destruction of attention span and destruction of uh, relationship building and deficits in the development of other skills. And all of those arguments are made about books several hundred years ago. So, and not all those things are true. We now take the book to be um, sort of this, this pinnacle of learning opportunity. And so a lot of those arguments have fallen away. And I hear a lot of parallels now in some of the arguments against technology uh, in its current form. Uh, I'm imagining tablets when I talk, when I talk about technology or uh, a lightweight computer. A lot of those same arguments are getting made again, that we are destroying attention span uh, or that we are um, doing things in a way that could be better done in more traditional methods with books or discussions so what makes let's talk let's talk about the nature of those counter arguments whether they were made hundreds of years ago in terms of distributing books or they're being made now in terms of screens there is an education philosopher that i've referenced on this podcast before neil postman who has also written a lot about the philosophy of technology and there are some two two ideas that he brings forth that i think are worth considering and they kind of contextualize these counter arguments one all technological benefits come at a cost all of them and oftentimes we are so excited about the obvious technological benefits of solving problems or making processes easier that we sometimes overlook or uh, fail to investigate the costs of these these technologies some of them have great costs vaccines destroy and eliminate diseases at the cost of getting a shot at several intervals during the course of your life that is an amazing benefit for a minimal cost it they, that's fantastic um there are others uh, like the internal combustion engine, which is a transportation technology that facilitated moving food so that population growth as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution skyrocketed globally. People could live longer, be healthier, healthier and survive better because of the internal combustion engine. And now the consequence of reliance on the internal bus combustion engine has climate change consequences that were not perceived consequences at the time of the adoption of the technology. That's a really good example, and I think it highlights the, the concern about uh, that's being articulated by people questioning our deployment of technology. And the issue is the internal combustion engine, we are too far to go back to horse-drawn carriages. That is just, we do not have the societal will to forego the internal combustion engine now that we are aware of the consequences. We are just unwilling to do that. So the concern is to repeat that consequence. Do we not understand the problems of socio-technology? We don't even need them to exist. We just need to accept that they could exist. And then to forego investing in that direction before we can explore and understand that space so that we don't find ourselves at a place we can't return from. I entirely agree. And I think that is what we need to approach here. A healthy skepticism of new technologies so that we can say that we've explored the area and attempted to identify what are they solving at what cost and can we mitigate those costs and can we improve those solutions. You were right about that engine. The second main idea, and this is, this is the end of technology philosophy, I promise. The second main idea is that technology does not add to society, it reshapes it. We can't go back for the, uh, the um, 
internal combustion engine, and arguably we can't go back from screens either. I think that they are ubiquitous. Now, we as teachers still have agency about how we use them in the classroom, but in terms of getting, inter getting information from screens, they are everywhere, and it's going to... It's, I don't think it's possible to take them away. Uh, what's interesting, if you look at the adoption curve for various technologies in the classroom or even in society, they follow a really predictable curve for rate of penetration. It's approximately logistic growth. So they, they spike with our early adopters and then they taper and we've got late adopters and holdouts. Uh, and that's consistent for a lot of things that we, that we I think, take for granted too often, computers and books and, and lots of things. They follow this general curve. Smartphones do not follow the curve. They are considerably uh, faster in their adoption than a lot of other technologies that I think we would also consider fundamental to our society. So smart, the smartphone adoption curve that is, that is much faster, that is destroying that common curve that's established in a lot of other places, suggests that you're right, that these screens are not going to go away. Their shape and form my tablet is, is obsolete the moment it arrives. My wife bought a new cell phone like a week ago, and we already see ads for the new phone, like the next version coming out. So it is moving swiftly, but the nature of screens and this mobile operational system and this interconnected nature of uh, our new person is definitely here to stay. But that's not necessarily true in the classroom. Teachers have that agency to decide and provide experiences for their students to promote their schema development. So how does a student's operation within our classroom necessitate different norms and expectations compared to their operation in general society? Well, the purpose of these devices and displays in society is uh, rapid communication, information exchange, entertainment. Uh, this communication technology is personalized to the needs of the individual and can be used by the individual how they see fit. In a classroom, we are socially gathered for a different purpose. We are there to help empower our citizenry and our primary tool for doing that is promoting schema development. So if tools, if technology are solving problems and facilitating processes, then the technology we need to use in our classrooms needs to be technology for solving classroom problems and facilitating classroom uh, uh, processes. Those are gonna be different when our goal is schema development versus what our personal goals are outside of the school. Uh, I, say, I accept the spirit of what you're saying. I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily that technology needs to solve classroom problems, but I said in an earlier episode, our objective should be growing schema to the ends of the earth. That is, that is all I am in the classroom to do, is grow the schema of my students with a secondary objective of growing my own schema. Like That's one of the reasons I love this job. So if we are there to grow schema, what is required to grow schema? introducing discrepant, discrepant events and unassimilated information into this schema. So which of those two things can technology allow us to do? They can, certainly in, they can certainly introduce new information and new examples. The question is, there are plenty of other technologies that can also do that. So I'm uncomfortable with your language so far. Yeah, let's do it. You have used technology several times interchangeably when you meant either computers 
or tablets or screen technology. And uh, so I don't know if you meant communication technology or social technology or an overhead projector or uh, stackable chairs or um, a, a grow lamp or... Mm -hmm. So let's create a problem space. Which technologies are we really wanting to address that you're trying to propose? Because uh, we, we can talk about spiral notebooks being an excellent technology for... Uh, recording space or collecting scratch paper, like I, if it if it allows us to make our schemas more visible, so that we can add more information to them or chairs, because uh, there are some teachers who reject chairs, right. who say stand up because it introduces a desirable difficulty, which helps you further engage with your schema. So I I don't know that I accept that I need to specify. I think all of that all technology has to pass through this filter of how does it allow us to grow our schema. Uh, then then I agree. I'm on board. I. I'm comfortable with your language. Okay. Okay. What was your question? <laughs> so, introducing new new and currently unassimilated information or presenting discrepant events are the two ways that I know how to grow schema. Tablets and tablets and information technology in general can allow us to do those things, but so can other stuff. Yes. So, are they better or worse than other stuff is now the question. And that's really what the article is addressing. Yeah. Are they better or worse? Are screens better or worse? And uh, so let's get to it. Let's look at one of the uh, more referenced popular papers in the academic space about comparisons between screen and paper. This paper is called The Effects of VDT uh, and Paper Presentation on Consumption and Production of Information, Referencing Psychological and Physiological Factors. Uh, is this linked in the Scientific American article? Yes. Well, it is, it is referenced in the Scientific American article. Yeah. Yes. So if you're looking for it, this is something you can get breadcrumbs to from the... Uh, it's referred to... Uh, it's the Swedish article they, they, they mentioned. Okay. Basically what they did was take everybody, give them two tests in one order or the other, and said, some of these are on screen, some of them are on paper. What do you know and how do you feel? That's what they did. And in generally, what they found was... the. When they took the tests on paper, they had a higher reading comprehension score, and when and they also felt less stress, less tiredness. They did find, however, that oddly, I found it odd, that screens reduced hunger. I, if I remember right, and I do not have the citation to share this, it's something about the particular color spectrum coming off of screens at that time that influenced a particular neuroreceptor that interfered with uh, leptin, I think, production. Like, it was just a coincidence of our physiology that happened to reduce hunger. Uh, I do not have the citation to share for that. So somebody out in the world give me the reference that either supports or refutes that. But I, I have this memory of that. Uh, I had no idea. That's pretty interesting. I just thought it was an odd finding. It uh, is. It is just an odd finding. Like, huh, look at that. Generally, this research found that the increased burden of interacting with the computers manifested itself in comprehension and physiological toll. But this happened in 2005. This was published in 2005, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this happened in Early four or three. That's 15 years ago. Technology looked a lot different 15 years ago. Our experience with technology looked a lot different 15 years ago. And I out of hand and immediately reject that children today are born able to work with smartphones. That is just false. That's just ridiculous. But we have a lot more experience with, this, with technology in general in our early lives, in our formative years as a society. So 
I don't know that those burdens are necessarily going to manifest themselves now, and that's a poorly described research space. Before you make that, you're going to be better able to articulate that later in this episode once we have explored the propositions as to why those spaces, why did that difference exist? This this research clearly indicated we should use paper. Paper had better reading comprehension and less associated stress. Mm -hmm. So at face value, we should use paper. In 2005... The, I knew of no, answer. I knew of no, no, nothing to suggest that we shouldn't be using paper. For, yeah. So let's talk about why, why might those differences have existed? So let's so like, talk just, why. Just do that. Why is it different? Why is it more stressful? Well, one of the reasons, and this is something that I think technology can get better at over time, is uh, the interfacing. You presented in our preparation a counter. A counter citation, one that is much more recent and kind of addressed some of the failings or it had some critiques of some of the prior work. And I think that those critiques were valid, though I think there were problems with your counter paper. Uh, the, The critiques that that paper presented were very salient. Some other literature, there's a there's another citation that's more recent that suggests that when those UIs are made by the same people with the same knowledge, expertise, and intent as paper publishers, that there is no loss in comprehension or understanding. If the UIs are getting better, then they're becoming more intuitive. So if that suggests that over time we can we can approach our fluency with paper in a digital space then that's valuable. That still doesn't answer the question of if we should. That says that we can. So in a world where you can have a paper copy of something and you can have a digital copy of something and your yield from the two are, it appears to be equivalent, which one do you use? Oh man. I, there's too many, there's so, two things, two divergent points I want to address with that. One, they appear to be equivalent. Currently you the the appearance of equivalence um, presented by the counter study that the more recent like twenty what year was that twenty seventeen was it no. this current twenty sixteen twenty fourteen so this is a year after the um, Scientific American synthesis that paper that suggested there was no difference um, was an eleven participant study mm-hmm. and it was primarily qualitative and analysis of qualitative response. And that paper specifically said that they intend to do a larger study. And I am looking forward to that one um, because I am skeptical of, of a, you know, 15-year uh, uh, robust body of literature. Uh, and I appreciate that they're skeptical because they do have some critiques of those you know, prior 15 years of research, but to say that this this study with 11 participants says that there is no difference in reading comprehension, so uh, it, we really need to, to challenge it, I think is a bit premature. So let's consider what I think, what I think are some of the more uh, meaningful points of their counter critique. They did say that print media has been uh, improving over 400 years. So as a display, it is very mature and it has become what it is as effective practices improved and less effective practices died out. Whereas these portable screen displays are a far different younger mechanism. 
And there are known improvements. There's, they mentioned something about Apple screens and display processes tend to be easier on the eyes and less stressful for the brain. They said that certain typefaces are superior on print, while other typefaces are superior on screens for ease of eye and stress. However, most practice is to just use a default print-optimized typeface on a screen. So they pose questions. What would these studies look like if they had modern screens optimized for current typeface? And I think that that is a valid and important question. I, I do think that that is a valid, important question. And those studies need to be recreated to address those variables at the scale of the original studies. And when that happens, I will be more prepared to seed ground because I currently have the position that if your students need to read something deeply that takes time, you should present them that work on paper. We haven't mentioned yet, all of this happens within a context and all of these studies are happening. I have read zero words in any of these papers that you and I have, have looked at to prepare for this episode where there's any discussion about managing the contextualized use of technology. I have access, I have had access to Apple devices in my classroom for the last four or five years, a handful of, of years. Managing their use is more than just reading an article on a tablet. Pictures get taken, games get downloaded, they get used for off-task behavior at a much higher frequency than other, if they're smart technology, then I'm going to say dumb technology, than other things, pieces of paper. There, I would sure love to see students sneakily continuing to read the text that I have printed out for them, but there are plenty of students who are sneakily going to be using alternative apps or taking pictures or messing with devices. And all of that off-topic off behavior negatively influences the quality of their struggle in my classroom moment to moment. Those can be managed with classroom management techniques and as my experience grew with those devices I got better at helping them understand appropriate direction of their attention but very few of those things have been discussed in any of the research and they are relevant to the productivity of a classroom on day over day so if I had a, a Kindle reader that is different from having an iPad which is different from having a full functioning computer or a cell phone so when we're talking about should we have, should I wholesale forbid technology in my classroom? Should I allow tablets on a regular basis, but forbid them periodically as well? Get tablets out, put tablets away. Or should I say you're using your technology whenever you see it's appropriate? Or what are the other policies I can implement? Those policies have to happen in a contextualized discussion that's appropriate for all the other demands and intangibles that those technologies bring. And I don't see very much, I've seen none of that represented in the research that we've considered to this point. So when it all boils down to it, are those perceived costs worth whatever benefits may be derived? And that boils down to what, if any, technology objectives do we have incumbent upon us as public school teachers? If I graduate a student from any high school in America who has never used a computer, is completely word processor illiterate, is completely spreadsheet illiterate, is completely web browser illiterate, have I failed in my job? Uh, is that our job? Yeah, that is my, yeah, that's my question. I don't think it is. So it is acceptable if I graduate 
if I graduate students, if somebody holds mm. a high school diploma but is technology illiterate? Uh, well, well, you said technology illiterate, but you probably meant communication technology illiterate. Uh, or maybe you didn't. Maybe you wanted to talk about their use of chairs. Uh, maybe you did, and that's fine too. I mean, if somebody can't use a chair, I have failed them. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Uh, yeah, my initial gut reaction to that was no, but I have changed because our overarching goal is effective citizenship. And as effective citizens, then they need to be able to be aware of navigating the benefits and costs and dangers of all kinds of tech technology. This, in a very concrete example, if you're a chemistry teacher and we're going to use Bunsen burners, well, there is some major technology uh, interface issues that you need to resolve with Bunsen burners so that your students do not burn themselves. Uh, and that is a big deal. Uh, and that attention needs to be sharp and focused and uh, a comfort with the functionality of, of those Bunsen burners and contingency plans and uh, effective uh, technique is critical. That's really important when you're using it in the classroom. Perhaps there is value in having exposure to these technologies at some point during their education in order for them to be prepared to more effectively navigate the complexities of these as citizens. No, not there is value in it. Is it incumbent upon us for them to be technology literate? Must there be some technology literacy in our high school graduates. Is the value zero or not zero? The value is not zero. I think that that's an easy, uh, yeah. If the value is not zero, what are the things they must be able to do with technology when they graduate from high school? As you've suggested, and I've probably cut, they need to sit in chairs. But there are other things they've got to be able to do with technology. What things do they have to be able to do? If, if they can't make a graph in Excel, that's probably acceptable. I don't like it. I don't pass along very many of my students who can't make a graph in Excel. But if we move on to some other technology at some point for visualizing data, that's going to be fine. If I fail to train a student in visualizing data, but they do many other things well, they're going to, gra they're going to pass my class and they're going to graduate. So that answer is no. So what things must a graduate be able to do with technology to call themselves a graduate? One of the pillars of effective citizenship is effective public communication. And there are lots of methods of public communication. There are lots. We want them to be able to effectively hold conversations with strangers. Some of these may be authority figures or hiring positions or um, just people they're interacting with at the post office. Uh, but we also want them to be able to be persuasive when they have a position that needs to be communicated. We want them to be able to uh, write effectively. And I don't have the... Um, I don't have any numbers or measurements about the volume of communication in our daily lives, but long-form written communication does occur and is important. Short-form written communication does occur and is important, and those communications happen on pen and paper for making documents and notes, and they happen digitally at a ever-increasing uh, volume. So digital communication techniques is something they should be proficient with, or at least familiar with, by the time they graduate. 
And that schema region is large and can encompass a lot of different ideas. That can include data visualization, that includes composition, that includes evaluation of sources, that includes so many different things. And they don't have to have full mastery of all of it. We do not have to have full mastery of all of it to be a graduate of high school. But they should have proficiencies in regions of that schema. How does technology allow us to develop those regions of their schema more effectively? I have two halves, two pieces of this argument. The first one is you can do nearly all of them without any digital communication device. You can evaluate qualities of sources by printing out a couple of journal articles with conflicting, conflicting viewpoints and have them critique them. All of that can be done. However, an important part of career and college readiness is being able to function in the contemporary world and especially looking forward in what the world looks like five and ten years from now, which, will, as you mentioned, is increasingly digital. So they need to have comfort engaging with the digital format of those spaces, even when they don't know what it looks like. I don't think they need to be trained on PowerPoint because Prezi is better than PowerPoint and there's probably another product I don't know about that's better than Prezi and there'll be another one three years from now that's better than everything that exists right now. But they need to be comfortable working in the space where they are sharing digitally the information they've collected to an audience. So if I develop mastery in a student for public discussion and they are comfortable struggling in that space with digital media, I have done my job. If they only know the mechanisms of manipulating PowerPoint, but are both inflexible to a change in technology and don't have well-developed public interaction practices, I have not done my job. So what it sounds like to me is that digital interfacing is really a subset of the communication skills domain and that the communication schema involves handwritten communication and it involves verbal communication and it involves body language and it involves digital communication and it involves representation and presentation of of information uh, and it, it involves data consumption and information analysis and so when we are building our broader communication schema with our students when we are promoting the development of that schema communication then within that schema there are nodes that are digital communication relevant that also deserve scaffolding yeah you said the word scaffolding which is amazing like that's what I think is important here. So if I, I ran a paperless classroom for several years, I resisted printing things off. We read things digitally unless there was some specific reason to look at them on paper. That means I made many errors because there were times that I did not develop any particular digi digital communication skill. So I paid the cost of a reduced understanding without yielding any benefit. When I make choices to do something digitally, that needs to contribute to the development of one of those digital skills. If I'm not developing a digital skill, don't pay the entry cost. I like that analysis. Uh, it goes back to that teacher decision-making framework. Identify your goals, 
I identify the research base that uh, promotes uh, behaviors that le that lead to those goals and then make decisions in your classroom about which of those behaviors you can promote and what can you do as a teacher to promote those behaviors in your students. If it is if you have a, com a digital communication goal, then you need to integrate and support experiences with digital communication in order to support that goal. If your current goal is not a digital communication goal, then you can focus on developing that goal and then when it's ready to get to a communication stage with that goal, then you can start integrating different opportunities to explore communication. So if we accept the axiom, don't pay the cost, if you're not going to yield the benefits of that cost, then we come all the way back around to some of the more current literature that suggests that there may be scenarios where there is not a cost to be paid. There is always a cost for technology. Sometimes it's worth it like shots for vaccines, but there is always a cost. What is the cost for using technology to deliver a, a piece of reading if the author or composer of that reading was involved in the, constru the construction of that digital medium and thus we have no diminishing returns on its usage? Well, what are the costs? There was a cost. First of all, accessibility is a cost. Um, the individuals that created that um, decided that there was an ideal display interface. Uh, and whether that ideal display interface is available uh, or a alternative which is not optimized is available can influence the, uh, the consumption of that. I said I promised no more education philosophy or technology philosophy, but this point is brought up that the implementation of technologies are inherently inequitable. So there are, if we say that, hey, this is a great way to consume it because these publishers have really developed the art of preparing easy to consume and navigate online communication that reduces the digital burden. So this becomes the, the difference between paper and, and display goes away. The problem is that not all students have access to that. And that I suppose is a different issue about some things that we discussed in the first episode. That is not an equitable uh, solution, so then you're not preparing all students to be no, as equally it's, effective It's citizens. not at all a different issue. It is the same issue. If we are public educators and we are not educating all of the public, that's our issue. The counter citation he referenced that's in our synopsis suggests at the end that it is content control that increases access to the understanding of the material. You are proposing that I accept that that will not be true across all demographics and cultural experiences. I think that we can safely say that the resource distribution of districts across the United States is highly disparate. In the counter-argument, The Guardian was one of the publications that presented uh, was presented to a group of, of individuals, and they argued that The Guardian's presentation was superior and more intuitive and less stressful and uh, more enjoyable to read for, than the other screen displays. So kudos, Guardian. You've done your work. You have improved your art. You've figured out your techniques, and you are continuing to improve to do that. Now, there's a little shout-out for you. That is fantastic. But how many districts across the United States are going to have the display screens that are optimized for the Guardian and how many of them can afford them? Uh, how many can afford them to their students on one-to-one -one as opposed to sharing in groups of four? How many of them have access to subscribe to the Guardian newspaper distributor so that they can actually have access to the newspaper in the first place? Those arguments seem to hinge on access 
to the desirable layout. Who stands to benefit the most from the additional effort and investment of an expectation to engage with those formats? So if I'm working in an affluent district in Johnson County, how many of those students are going to have their lives meaningfully impacted by being expected to engage with digital communication technologies at school? I'm going to argue very few, at least in our most known demographics, because they're getting those experiences in other parts of their life. Whereas there are students in our district, in, in Johnson County District, but much more so in many other districts, who are not getting those experiences in other parts of their life, and they stand to benefit the most from the additional investment of their teachers and their district in having access to those resources. So I fundamentally reject the argument that because a student doesn't have a computer, there shouldn't be computer expectations because they are the students who stand to benefit the most by far from those experiences. They need to learn the behaviors necessary to gain access to those computers at public libraries. They need to understand the schedule of the school library so they know which assignments and which reading expectations they need to meet during that schedule. They need to learn which of their friends and family they can lean on to borrow a computer because they will engage with those expectations within the workforce. So they need to learn those behaviors while they're in the school system. So what I'm hearing is actually a call for communication differentiation uh, in the classroom. Students that have fewer opportunities at home to uh, access these things need to be guided to leverage the opportunities and experiences available for them at school, where students who do have those experiences at home need to be developing some other part of their communication schema in the classroom and need to be challenged in some other space or deeper within that space and should have different uh, expectations for exercising their communication schema in our classrooms. I like that idea as a should. I like that. It's all about finding out what the students know and helping them develop what they know and what they can do. So if we can identify which students have a rich, robust history with digital communication technology, we can then challenge them either deeper in that space or in a different space that they are less challenged. And if we have students who have lived pen and paper their entire life because they don't have screen technology interfacing at home, then we can challenge those students to prepare something that does, at least at an introductorial level, promote engagement with that that communication space. Right now, I have all of my students present long-form essays in my assessment practices, but I can imagine a world in the future where my assessments have differentiated um, uh, submission forms, where uh, if I, if I, and I like standards-based grading, and so the idea that one of my standards is a communication standard that has development of different types of information display and submission and they can choose which content they want to pair with which submission choice, uh, that is something that's highly engaging and imaginative for me as, as I consider what my career might look like five years from now or next year. So I like this idea of differentiating submission to help students challenge their own communication schema. I like that a lot. And now for something completely different. Today's non sequitur is kind of a misnomer because it does a little bit follow. 
it, it's a little bit related to this. Uh, if we are going to define a goal of American public education, which is a better goal? Producing one Nobel laureate, so your high school's task is to find one student who could earn a Nobel Prize and then do everything you can to make that a reality, or is your job to work towards having zero students drop out? Minimize to zero the number of students who drop and do not earn a high school diploma. The question is defined as one posed to public education. We as a public education institution, our job is to improve the citizenry as a whole, which means that we should minimize the, the burden on society of the uneducated. It is expensive to be ignorant. So our job is to ensure that nobody is left behind. That has been accepted by our nation and is actually something that is pretty different than a lot of the rest of the world. We have said we will educate every student. It is mandatory in America that you attend school. We do not prune you from school until the end of high school. So our job, because we have defined it to be educate everyone, is that answer that that is the answer to the question. We must educate everyone. We have failed that dictum when somebody quits. So we must as defined by the legislature, educate everyone, which means we should endeavor to have zero dropouts. Nobel laureates are game changers. They are adding to the sum of human knowledge, as many scientists do or many uh, experts in any discipline might do, uh, but they are usually being, they're being, being recognized because of the immediate applicability of the value of that knowledge or experience or creation of tool or technique and that all contributes to reducing suffering it is the greatest uh, like world changing um, events by these top minds that uh, revolutionize how we live our life and improve our life expectancy. Uh, these are the people that make the world better significantly, not at a local level, not at a uh, regional level, but globally we are making wholesale improvements to what it means to be human with Nobel laureates. And so we must continue to foster and develop uh, the Nobel laureate. Your argument is flawed on both ends. If there are Nobel laureates, but an ignorant populace, their contributions can, and I would argue, will be ignored. Vaccinations are rejected by an ignorant populace. Their innovations must be given, must be bequeathed to a population sufficiently trained and educated to accept and responsibly apply them. On the other side, if we focus on graduating everyone, there are some individuals with sufficient agency and motivation to develop themselves into Nobel laureates. We will not hit a zero number of Nobel laureates with a focus on zero dropout rate, and we will maximize the public's ability to leverage and accept and disseminate their advancements, as opposed to without it, we could have a shining beacon that shines into an impenetrably dark forest. Uh, you mentioned that uh, improving dropouts, uh, reduce, or, um, reducing dropouts 
increasing uh, graduation rate will uh, create you know people that are less burdensome for society. But just because someone didn't drop out does not mean that they are going to be a successfully self-actualized person, that they will be a community contributing individual, and that they won't be a burden to others in their environment. Uh, that the, the the connection between those two is that one is necessarily the other is not universally true. And two, when the Nobel laureate figures out the psychological techniques to resolve the backfire effect, we will not have that dark shining forest. I didn't like any of that. How was the beer? I like the beer. It's light. I'm experiencing a little bit of an impact from the density of the beverage more so than last time. I like it, although it's not particularly complex either. I agree. It is a pretty moderate stout, and then it's a little smoothed by the vanilla-y-ness, so that sometimes a stout can have sort of a, uh, an acidic or an acidy taste, and that this removes it. So if you enjoy that taste, you're not going to get it from the Breckenridge Vanilla Porter, but if that turns you off from stouts, this is a moderate stout that is sort of a self... Uh, self-aware and so it addresses that issue and it is very easy to drink but it is not complex i generally like it i've drank it before i plan to drink it again i like breck in general though i like it too yeah. Yeah. cheers right. thanks for joining us discuss research and struggle well